Scunthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a score. So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record, 9.68. The wind is okay. How easy was that? We are back on Off the Podium for another special athlete interview here as uh, we're continuing our series here on great Canadian athletes. And uh, we have somebody with a stacked resume to talk to today. We have a former world champion, former Commonwealth Games gold medalist, former Pan American Games gold medalist, two-time Olympian, one bronze medal, and the reigning Olympic gold medalist in the high jump, Derek Drew. And Derek, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me quite the introduction <laughs> let's let's just pitch that for your introduction for uh 2021 in tokyo <laughs> you can even just take our audio and just play it over the stadium <laughs> i'd vouch for it i'm uh, also here no, too by the way guys I'm oh here. yeah and ben ben I've no <laughs> olympic those... medals no world championships <laughs> none of that but i'm proud to be speaking to an olympic gold medal that's my achievement uh, Derek, uh, we always start off these interviews just by uh, asking how you got into your sport of choice. Uh, and I could guess, uh, like most Canadians, you know, there was track and field as a kid. Uh, so maybe your you know, background was just high jumping and having some success uh, elementary school or whatever. But, uh, you know, if you want to go even further than that, how did you get into high jumping, uh, I guess, competitively? Yeah, so I mean, as a kid, I was quite fortunate my parents were really encouraging and um really just allowed my sisters and me to um pursue really any any endeavors that we wanted to try so at one point or another i was playing basically every sport any sport that you can name um in elementary school i did literally everything that was offered track and field was one of those sports. Um, and I don't know that I would say that I fell in love with it more than any others. I just loved competing. So, uh, I got a little taste of track and field early on, but the time was still pretty committed to team sports. Um, and I was a hockey player for literally my entire youth. Um, but then as I, as I got older, as my body started to, changed and I grew into the you know the form that I have today I usually say that high jump kind of chose me rather than rather than the other way around um I often say that I decided or you know put into the universe at a young age that I wanted to be an Olympian I wanted to be a professional athlete I just had no idea what sport that was going to be so um at 10 years old that was kind of the plan that was the dream um and it took you know, the better part of a decade for, for me to realize what that sport was going to end up being. Is it true that at one point when you discovered high jump that you went and put a broom over a couple of speakers and, and used <laughs> that to practice? Is that a true fact that I read? That is a true fact. I, I mean, was basically trying to figure out a way to play any and every sport at home, you know, because I just couldn't get enough of it with one, you know, soccer game a, a, a week um, or only getting to play certain sports in gym class. So I was always kind of trying to figure out a way to to do things at home. High jump was one that I was able to get a little taste of at school and, and decided that I wanted more. So set up a little makeshift uh, high jump pin in my parents' basement um, where, you know, like you read, the broomstick was, was the crossbar and I, I used speakers and a, and a couple of books to sort of elevate that bar. Any uh, really bad accidents? I mean, I, I know many times as a child, you know, horsing around in the basement, many things broken, uh, lots of punishments. <laughs> Was this with like the parents' permission or did you ever like, oh, I missed that one. There goes another broom. I, you know, I don't remember any, any really big accidents. Um, I mean, I tried not to hit the broom, obviously, so I think <laughs> I can say that 
those were pretty pretty much unscathed. Um, again, I don't have I don't have a ton of memory of doing it, but the the situation um, I will say actually I think lens or is probably the reason why I jumped from the left side of the pit just because it was the sort of formation of the of the basement. Um, but the other funny thing about it is I would have had to have been standing sort of in our downstairs living room area where my parents would have quite often been. So I'm sure that they knew what was going on and figured, you know, either it's going to be fine or he's going to hurt himself. or He's going to learn his lesson. So um, I guess they were, they were right. Did you also then have, you know, the, the driveway hockey net and kind of a soccer net as well? Like, did you just kind of have almost like a, a complete sports arena facility at your house in every single possible corner you could have? Pre- yeah, pretty much. We are the driveway. Yes, we certainly had a, uh, uh, a hockey net in the driveway when my dad would bring home plexiglass from his work that we could, it kind of serves as uh, artificial ice, um, not to skate off of, but, uh, you know, it's like shooting a puck off the ice, a basketball net in the driveway. There's a park literally across the street for anything like baseball or soccer that needs a, a little bit more room. So it was a pretty, uh, yeah, it was a pretty ideal um, childhood setup in, in terms of athletics. I think in almost every interview we do, we get very similar answers like what you gave that, um, you know, you, you were just into all sports and it was just, okay, which one do you excel at? Uh, you mentioned that, you know, high jumping sort of chose you when you were growing up and you were thinking about, you know, potentially being an Olympian one day, did you have another sport that you were really gunning for thinking, oh, it would be incredible if I could, you know, be a gold medalist in this one day? You know, I really, I, I really don't think so. I, I, I remember specifically being really excited after watching the um, 2000 Olympics in Sydney. It's kind of, that's usually, I would say is the first games that I remember watching. I was, I was 10 years old. Um, and I was just really, really, that's kind of really when I fell in love with it. And I remember specifically kind of thinking about it and saying, I'm going to go to the Olympics one day. I just need to decide what Mm. sport. Um, And I remember going through my head and thinking, okay, well, I play hockey. I'm okay. I definitely don't think I'm that good. Um, I play soccer. I play X, Y, Z. And so I I don't think at a very young age, I had decided what I thought this sport was going to be. It probably wasn't until midway through high school, I would say that, that track and field really kind of started to, um, set itself apart. And I, I realized that this was probably my best bet. I still, it was probably, gosh, another four or five years before I even wow. thought that the Olympics were in my, in my wheelhouse. Track and field is a, is a late entry sport um, by most accounts. So it's not super common that someone is 12 or 13 years old and, and shows that kind of promise or any sort of reliable promise that they're going to go to the Olympics. So um yeah, I, I remember even being in university, starting probably just my first year of university, and not really knowing that that this was a, a viable option or a viable um, uh, career path. One thing I remember from high school and doing track and field and sort of clearly I'm sitting here as a podcast host, never had any ability in that area. But when it came to doing things in the field and the, the track, I high jump was one of those weird ones where I just... I didn't get it because I couldn't do the whole way. You've got to jump over the bar, right? The sort of the backwards motion. There was just something mentally that somehow I can't contort my body in that way. Did did you ever have any, like, how do you adapt to that? I'm not trying to start a late blooming career here, Derek. I'm not going to be challenging you next year at the Olympics by any means, but (laughs) like how, yeah, maybe. But how do you kind of, how do you get into that mindset? Or is that just something when you're sort of talking about all these sports that it's not something that just happens, you just did it and then eventually you just adapt that technique and that's kind of what you become good at? Yeah, so I think it's pretty pretty common that track and field athletes, especially like pole vaulters and high jumpers, maybe more so on the women's side than the men's, but have a background in gymnastics or at least some sort of at least some sort of broad athletic background where they were able to learn body awareness at a pretty young age which is super super important in high jump you know we i've competed against a lot of guys that have 
far, far, far greater, just pure athleticism and a higher vertical jump than I do. But it's when you, it's when you combine those two things, a body awareness and an ability to, to know where you are in space. And like you said, contour your body over the bar that really, I think plays a huge role. So for me, I never did gymnastics. Um, but I was always kind of, my, I grew up, my parents have a pool. I was always trying to do different tricks, flips, things like that into the pool on friends, trampolines, things like that. So I think I developed that kind of body awareness at a pretty young age. And I had an older, I had an older sister who is a world-class, was a world-class side jumper is now retired. Um, but so I was able to see her do high jump, realize this was something I was probably interested in. And so I was kind of exposed to the technique, the general rules, there aren't a whole lot of rules in high jump, but the general um, idea of how it's done at a pretty young age. So when I, when I was practicing in my, in my basement, I was doing things, maybe not technically perfect, but like, but I was doing them to the guideline or to the rules of high jump, meaning you can only jump off one foot. Um, and really, you know, that's basically the only rule. And that's one that when I coach little kids, it's, it's a very hard, it's a very hard concept for them to get. Many people want to jump off two feet as do, you know, volleyball players who come to high jump and, and very often basketball players as well. First of all, Ben, I'm so glad to hear you say that you had the exact same childhood experience I did. Because when we, they were teaching us high jumping, I think in like third grade or fourth grade, I remember the teacher saying, Colin, I need you to stay behind after class. And it was literally, uh, you are the worst one in the class at this. So I think the main thing, like you, you mentioned about having to you sort of jump backwards, it just feels so unnatural. I remember my gym teacher taught me what was called the barrel roll, which is basically like flying over like Superman. You know, I was able to get a little bit more like that. But, uh, you know, is, is high jumping something where everybody sort of just adapts their own form? Because you mentioned that, you know, you you jump from the left side, maybe you're a little bit different than other high jumpers. You know, we saw in Rio, the same thing with Andre DeGrasse. People commented on his running styles. It's different. It's unusual, but it works for him. It is is high jumping something where it is very strict? This is how you do it. Or can you adapt styles more the way you did? I think there's, there's definitely variation. Um, let's say 40 years ago, you could go to a different competition and see different styles of different ways of going over the bar. So you mentioned basically a barrel roll. That was a pretty common way to high jump 40 years ago until Dick Fosbury started going over backward. So there's been changes like that uh, in the sport for sure. For the last 30 years, um, I would say everyone is using the Fosbury flop. So everyone is going over backward with, but if you go to a high jump competition, yes, like I said, I kind of grew into a prototypical high jumpers body. A lot of guys look like me. I'm, you know, six, five, quite lean. That's a pretty common body type, but there's also guys that one of my favorite high jumpers growing up is only about five ten and runs very fast to the bar it's totally different for me so there is that, that sort of variability you can sort of pick and choose what works for you I'm a, I'm a firm believer in in an athlete's body kind of knowing what works best for them and so not really if you're coaching not really trying to change things up too too much to get everyone to fit into that sort of textbook mold um so for me I jump a little bit I jump a little bit differently than maybe the textbook or a lot of my competitors would do. I think in Rio, it was kind of, in my opinion, it was sort of overblown um, just how different my, my approach is, but there are, you know, certain, certain differences between one jumper to the next. I believe that approach. So while most people will run towards the bar at pace, yours is sort of more of a, a slower style and then, bounding a little bit more towards the bar. Is that correct? That's kind of the one that people were picking up on a little bit in Rio. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of guys do, I mean, if you're looking at a textbook explanation um, or description, usually they would say basically run as fast as you can that your body is still going to be able to handle because, you know, I could run my 100 meter PB and then put my foot down and try to jump and it's probably not going to go out so well. So go so well so there's you know trying to find that balance typically people would say you want to run as fast as you can handle i've just kind of found that for me doing more of a bound um 
whether it's just getting my legs ready to react in a better way, um, it's setting myself up a little bit better for the jump. That's seems like it's worked for me, you know, better than the full tilt uh, approach the bar has. You mentioned how you didn't really get into high jumping, I guess, more competitively until college, or that's where you really started to develop. Um, but, you know, just looking at your, I guess, very quick ascent to the gold medal in Rio, really looking at only a couple of years there. And, uh, I mean, you had success, you know, world championships and even in London uh, at a very young age. Uh, how quickly did this all come together for you? Because I, I we, obviously every sport's going to be different. We talk to a lot of athletes where like, oh, yeah, you know, you're waiting four years and then there's another four years before you even make the team. And it, it almost seemed to happen overnight, even though I'm sure it doesn't feel that way to you. You sort of just appeared on the scene and then were immediately in medal contention everywhere you went. Yeah, so I had a... Um pretty interesting or trajectory, I should say. Um, I was, I did have a, a, you know, a medial level of success in high school. I, um, you know, won a couple of offset championships or like provincial championships in Ontario. I competed once on the, our national team at the world youth championships uh, when I was 17. So that was kind of, you know, leading into college sort of what my profile looked like. It certainly didn't have, you know, Olympic prospects necessarily on the horizon. Um, and I, I graduated high school the year of the Beijing Olympics. So that was certainly not, you know, an 18 year old mm -hmm. boy competing at the Olympics for track and field was quite rare. Um, it certainly wasn't, wasn't something that it, you know, was on the horizon for me. So the next four years are, are obviously, you know, it's, it's the Olympic quadrennial. Um, those are really important years. So I, I experienced a pretty drastic growth there. Uh, when I went to university, it was the first time in my life that I was focusing on just one sport. I would say that it was a very late mature. Um, so I really wouldn't, I would, I would say that I didn't really hit puberty fully until I went away to university. And so there was a lot of factors that sort of came into play there for the first time I was really kind of strength training. And so in, in 2009, that was my first year in university. Um, and I actually jumped the Olympic standard, you know, just one year short of the, of the Beijing games. So I think from that point, it was kind of, I was on that trajectory to make the Olympics. Um, I was certainly, you know, at that, at that level. And then it was kind of just a steady grind from there. But the reason why I wasn't really, um, seen on this, on this, on the scene between 2008 and 2012 is, um, you know, 2010, I was still, I was still in university the entire time. So I, a university season is really, really draining. It's tough to compete in the summer. Uh, 2010 is kind of an off year in track and field. So I didn't compete at all that year, 2011, things were going really well. And then I ended up tearing a few ligaments in my foot and had to sit out all summer. So that's a reason why I wasn't at the world championships. I wasn't at nationals, anything like that. So then next thing you know, it's 2012, the Olympic year again. And, um, you know, no one has really seen my name on a senior stage. It was, you know, literally the first time that I was ever on a senior national team heading to the Olympics. So, um, I think my, my, my climb was pretty steady. I kind of always knew that 2012 was, um, was definitely within grasp, but I was doing so definitely behind closed doors, just, you know, given the circumstances. And what was that moment like then through all of that, when you qualify for the Olympics, going back to when you said you sort of fell in love with the Olympics back in 2000 and here you are 12 years later, you're going to be walking out there and representing Canada in the biggest sporting stage in the world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's surreal, truly. Um, Growing up and for the first 22 years of my life, I would watch the Olympics and think, you know, th this is amazing. I'm just totally enamored. I was totally in awe with these athletes. And you just, at least for me, I didn't see myself like that. You know, I, I always had this dream of going to the Olympics, but I don't know that I ever really truly thought that that was in the cards for me because these athletes were just otherworldly. Um, and so it, it, it was surreal when I, I didn't know that this was something that I was 
on the trajectory for, but I think when it finally did happen, I thought, I don't know what I thought, you know, this is, this is insane. Um, I can't believe that this is actually happening to me. The experience in Rio is something that I, I found interesting, especially in following the media uh, around the high jump event. I mean, obviously, you know, winning the gold is going to be a big deal in the Summer Olympics, especially, you know, for Canadians. But uh, maybe because of Greg Joy, who I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Greg Joy. Uh, everybody in Canada is familiar with Greg Joy. You know, the, the success that he had in Montreal, which in retrospect wasn't even a gold medal. I mean, it, it was more or less, this was the best we did at, you know, the home games. And he just became so famous, maybe synonymous with the Summer Olympics over any other athlete for decades to follow. And then you come along and it's, I think the highest placing that Canada had ever had and let alone as a gold. Uh, did you find that there was a lot more attention on uh, either the event itself going in or even afterwards, just because of how much Canadians associated Greg Joy and this sport with Canada? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, high jump, it's no secret that high jump is a pretty niche sport. Um, even, you know, in Canada where we've had a lot of success in, at the Olympic games in the past. Um, so I don't know that I would, I would say that high jump had more attention than anything else, which I was fine with. I'm appreciative of, I, I would rather sort of go in under the radar and just be able to do my thing with not, a, with not a ton of uh, pressure. So I think that I, I benefited from having a super strong Canadian athletics team heading into Rio with many medal favorites that the expectations and the pressure um, and the attention was dispersed amongst, you know, a good handful, if not more of us. Uh, so though, though I was excited and happy that Canadians were excited to watch high jump, um, I don't think that I felt there was any extra or added um, pressure or attention than what was warranted. One thing I'd like to just quickly ask, not gel too much on uh, Derek, I'm probably sure you're sick of talking about it. Uh, 2012, the gold medalist in that event, of course, has since been disqualified. They haven't reissued the medals there. You, of course, are in a three-way tie for bronze, which in its own was a unique aspect. <laughs> but, I mean, what kind of is your thought on what should happen there is that something where if the guy who wins gets disqualified you should kind of be bumped up to to silver and kind of if that's the case what what's happening there have you heard anything recently about what may happen if you may get a silver instead of a bronze yeah no i have not heard anything basically since the news came out almost two years ago now um that ukov was being disqualified i don't know what the what the protocol is like. I, I, anytime where I see results from London now, it just straight up says no gold medal awarded. Um, for me, if I was the silver medalist in London, I would probably be much more anxious and much more, I would be pushing for, for those reallocations to happen. Or if I finished fourth and was, you know, in line for a bronze medal, I would probably be a, a bit more excited about it or a bit more, um, uh, I would be pushing for it, I guess, a bit more given my circumstances that I was bronze and have the, in the prospect of being bumped up to silver. I don't want to say that, you know, for me personally, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. I think for the sport, it probably is important to show that, you know, cheaters are going to be caught um, in the end, the right, right is going to be done. Uh, I truly feel for the silver medalist in London. I think he does obviously deserves a gold medal. He deserves that, that recognition. Um, but well, what he's already, what he's lost in the last eight years cannot be replaced. Um, so you can do so much to, to make amends, but only so much can be done. The thing that I uh, remember the best about your win in Rio, aside from just the excitement of we won a gold medal, you know, uh, it was after you had already secured the victory. And this is the thing that I've, I've never quite wrapped my head around all the rules of high jumping, but you get the opportunity to jump again. And depending on what network you're watching on, if you're watching on CBC, NBC, who knows what, there seems to be differing opinions on whether or not a jumper would go again. But for me, I watching at home, I'm thinking if you have another jump to go, even though you secured the medal, why wouldn't you go for, I mean, I'm assuming you were just going to try to, you know, 
bump it up and maybe go for world record, you know, Olympic record, whatever it is. Uh, is, is there a reason why somebody wouldn't go for that? And what kind of uh, led to your decision to, I want to jump one more time, even though I don't have to? Uh, yeah, so I, I actually in Rio could have jumped three more times. Um, I elected to take just one because, <laughs> I mean, it, in order to jump 240 or to jump, you know, any sort of Olympic height, it requires a lot of energy and it's also quite emotionally draining. Um, so for me, when I found out that I won, I knew... I knew that it was probably going to happen. I knew that it wasn't looking good that the other jumper was, was going to make this bar. So when you, when he misses, which he probably is going to, you know, you're going to win, but you need to keep yourself in the mindset because you're jumping really well. I think I have a great shot at breaking the Olympic record today. And I want to take that shot. So when I found out that I won, I was really just trying as hard as I possibly could to, you know, don't celebrate it right now. You've got business still to take care of. Um, so kind of trying to like shoo away cameramen to just keep everything, keep myself composed, keep everything in place to take this shot at the Olympic record. Um, I often say that I almost wish that he had made that bar so that I could have taken three legitimate attempts at the Olympic record under some pressure where it really meant something. Um, but to be honest, that was really the only reason why I took the three jumps. I had already won. Um, if it wasn't to, to sort of set a new Olympic record, I probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have taken the other three jumps. So it's all kind of circumstantial whether you would, would take it or not. And it's not, it's not a super rare, or sorry, it's not a super common occurrence that somebody wins the Olympics by a height. So usually you don't see that. Normally we're kind of watching misses uh if someone if both athletes don't make it we have to go back and look at the scorecard which is always you know really exciting for for the fans who don't really understand the rules to uh sort of try to figure out it's such you talk about the emotions that emotional aspect of your sport which is so unique because you're talking about they're watching your competitors miss and it's kind of one of these sports where I guess deep down you are cheering for these guys to miss um, because, you know, you want to win and to win, you need them to miss. Otherwise you guys are going to be jumping all night. So I, I can imagine from that mental aspect and then also just that mental aspect of clearing the bar, because at the end of the day, you need to jump over a bar to win essentially. And it's, I can imagine there's a psychological element to that because you might have a, a personal best. You might be the world record holder in the event. You're capable of jumping higher than anyone ever. But on a night, you just might not even be able to clear 2-2 two, two, and you just can't get over those mental demons. How, how much do you work on that mental ability as much as you are your physical ability when you go into an Olympic final? Yeah, I think especially in um, the events like high jump and pole vault where – it's really at its bare roots, you against a bar. Um, and you are probably not going to end a competition on a make. You're probably not going to end a competition on this, this huge high, like, you know, winning a hundred meter race or having a huge throw like that. It's, it's definitely, it's a different, it's a different beast than the other sports, I think. So uh, the mental aspect is super, super key. Like I said before, I think there's, there's been plenty of times where I've gone into a competition and I'm not the most athletic person out there. I'm not the best jumper even, but I think that um, my, you know, sort of mental fortitude and my ability to compete under pressure has, is what has sort of set me apart. Um, and it's tough to, it is tough to train for that because there's always, always different variables that come into play. No competition is the same, whether you're, um, I've gone into competition, the world championships where I was the first jumper. So it was up to me, you know, to put the pressure on everybody else. I don't get to see what anyone else is doing. I'm going to be, I might be finished my competition and have to watch to see everybody else miss to see if I even landed on the podium. Um, or you can be the very end and get to see everyone else clear these bars. And now it's, now you're the last person it's up to you. So, um, there's definitely, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that come into play, a lot of things that you can try to work on. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think at the end of the day, sometimes that mental fortitude is something that you either just have or you don't. 
And in terms of that too, the strategy involved in a sport like high jump, because as you're sort of saying, if you're the first one out there, you you set the standard. But I remember you talk about Sydney um, falling in love with pole vault because we had Tatiana Grigorieva who very nearly took the gold for us that night for Australia and got the silver. So that's kind of where I'm learning sports like this, where it's that strategy of I'm going to start with this height and oh, maybe I'll skip that height because I don't need to jump that height. I'll go to the next one. Like how much does that involve in sort of your preparations and, and how do you work out that strategy do you just go each subsequent jump or do you automatically go to a certain height because you just want to kind of start high and keep going from that point on yeah that's a that's one thing that's kind of you know it's obviously different from athlete to athlete when you get to an olympic final usually the the you start so high at least for me you we start so high and the field gets dispersed fairly quickly it gets thinned out pretty quickly um i generally don't find that it's worth it to to skip a height um and i i tend to to warm up a little bit more as the competition goes as i get some jumps under me so for me it's never really much of a question i usually you know just jump every bar try to make everything on my first first attempt um at least that's plan a if things aren't going quite so well um, then I'll maybe decide to, to skip a bar here or there. Uh, but usually I'm not just skipping a bar to save energy, which is what some jumpers do, which is what the uh, bronze medalist in Rio did, Bondarenko from Ukraine. Um, he tends to only jump every other bar because he you know, feels that he is conserving energy, I assume. Uh, for me, the, the only time that I would really kind of skip bars or, or get into that sort of um, psychological play would be at the end of the competition, I'm in metal contention. Let's say I miss at 238 and my competitor makes it. I would then pass because I know I'm going to have to make the next bar to, to beat him anyway. And it doesn't matter whether I have 236 on my scorecard or, you know, or 238, I'm still going to get second place. So it, it's, it's sort of tough to explain that in, in you know, in a, in a short sentence, um, it's a little bit easier if I've got a pen and paper and can sort of explain a, <laughs> a scorecard for you, but I know it's confusing. Um, and there's a lot often times where even as high jumpers, we'll talk about it and be like, well, who would have won in this situation? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I would have to see a scorecard, but typically if I'm in a competition, I have a pretty good idea of what place everybody is in, um, without having to, without having to see the scorecard. Obviously, between Rio and Tokyo, you made uh, an interesting decision that uh, uh, you're going to, I guess, you can't say switch sports. I mean, you're still a track and field athlete, but now your your focus is going to be for Tokyo, uh, the decathlon, which boggles my mind that anybody can go out there and do <laughs> countless sports in uh, in one Olympics. You know, I, I got really into the decathlon uh, at the last Olympics. Uh, now, is this something where you have to choose to only do the decathlon or are you going to be doing the decathlon and high jumping? Uh, so th- that kind of depends it has a, a few factors, really. Um, one would be straight up on schedule. If it is, you know, f- physically possible to do the two. Um, I would say my, my goal in making that sort of training change um, wasn't so much at the Olympics. My goal was probably always to compete at, in the high jump at the Olympics. Uh, it was more as a secondary. I would have loved to have competed for Canada at some, some games, some sort of championship in the decathlon. So whether that's, you know, the world championships, Commonwealth games, something like that, just because I felt like it was, that's what I was recruited to go to university to compete in the decathlon. And I did all through my five years. Um, I graduated in 2013. So after the London Olympics and I was still competing in the combined events to that point. So, and that's kind of when I felt my strongest. It's when I felt most confident competing um, because of that decathlon training, it was kind of my roots in the sport and I wanted to stick with that. And it wasn't until after I graduated, um, that I really started focusing on high jump solely. And it was really the first, also the first time in my career that I was experiencing these sort of nagging injuries that often single sport athletes do, or 
single sport athletes experience because they're doing the same thing day in and day out. So the decision to go back to Mighty California Roots was more rooted in just wanting to be a more complete athlete um, and sort of avoid some of those injuries that I had had in the, in the previous years. So at the Olympics, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I was good enough or could have gotten good enough to compete in the Olympics or really be competitive in the decathlon, but it was more um, as a training decision to, um, to just get back to my roots in the sport. Did, do you have, of the, all the decathlon events, do you have one that uh, you consider to be your next specialty, like as a javelin or something else? Uh, easily my next best is, is the hurdles. Um, so I have I have competed at Canadian Nationals in hurdles. It was a, definitely my strong, my second strongest event um, in the NCAA. And given the way that the scoring system works in, in the decathlon, oftentimes – I score almost as many points in the hurdles as I do in the high jump. So those two are pretty far and away my top two. Uh, the next, you know, I enjoy a lot of the sports. Javelin was one I, I did in high school and and always had a decent level of success. So um, I will say those three are, are typically my top three fade. Are you just a guy that hates bars? You want to jump over a high bar? There's hurdles? Like, I mean, you just got something against <laughs> you scared of them or something? Or... <laughs> Well, like I said, I, I don't think I've ever gone into a competition. I felt like I was the best pure athlete out there. Um, so I think I always kind of need something to even the playing field. So hurdles is a, I, hurdles is a, is a good way for you to feel fast. Um, or at least for me to feel fast and compete against really, really fast guys, but they would all, you know, kick my ass in a, in a flat race. <laughs> I'd love to just quickly go back to Rio and again, those emotions, winning a gold medal again, uh, Derek, I always like to live through our guests because you know, it's something I'll never achieve, but I mean, clearly getting, getting that moment where you're going to be an Olympic gold medalist hearing Oh Canada and just kind of everything that came with that moment. I mean, is that something that you can put into words? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly, going to be something that I won't forget. I, I oftentimes think more about that moment than even the actual competition in Rio. Um, my only, I don't know how to describe it. The only thing that I would say I maybe was disappointed about the experience is given the way that a high jump schedule or sorry, the athletic schedule works at the Olympics, um, is, I think I was probably, I think I was one of the last people on the track that night in Rio. So they don't do the medal ceremony that night. So you go back the next day. So I, I had at that point had 24 hours to sort of process what had happened. I had seen, I hadn't seen my family, but I, you know, I'd seen my coach. I had seen my, my teammates in the village. It had become real that this had already happened. And I had thought about, you know, what's it going to be like standing on the podium, listening to the national anthem. So I wasn't quite as emotionally um, struck by standing standing on the podium as I wish that I had been. I often think that if we had just walked straight over to the podium right away, I would have just been on rank, um, which I kind of wanted, you know. Uh, for Tokyo, most of the athletes that we've talked to, uh, obviously the cancellation of it, we we got their reactions very soon after it was canceled. I think you're the first one we've had on that still, I'm guessing, you know, training to be there, but there's been that time to process. Uh, what's it like with uh, training? Now, are you, are you in the middle of training still? Is, does it seem like it could be a never ending wait? You know, are we going to go to Tokyo in 2020? Like, how do you actually six months now down the road, how do you actually prepare for Tokyo, even with all the inevitables of whether or not it'll happen? Uh, I mean, it's certainly been, it's certainly been a year where you've been tested. If you have adversity, you know, if you can, if you can roll with the punches right now, um, I think it's important for us to just kind of train as if the games are going on, but be very mentally prepared, I think, um, for the possibility that they might not. You know, it's there. There are a lot of things 
in life that are, you know, just more important than sport. I know that it's tough for athletes um, who feel that, you know, sport is their entire life to accept that. Um, but I mean, these are unprecedented. Obvi- I mean, it's such a cliche, but these are such unprecedented times. So right now we are still training uh, as best as we can. We were just able to get in a pretty solid, solid block of uninterrupted training um, until just, I think starting yesterday, Toronto has gone back into lockdown. So things are probably getting a little bit more tricky right now. So right now we're basically just kind of dealing with what, dealing with things, doing the best that we can training as if the Olympics are going on, but open to open to the very real possibility that they might not happen. I want to take this opportunity, Derek, this is something that we've not brought up before in the show, but uh, Colin and I have talked a lot about it when we're actually covering games that, um, you, you, I mean, I'm saying this right now, you're going to win back-to-back gold in Tokyo. I'm, <laughs> I've got that positive mindset. However, the slight tidbit with that oh, fact no. is that whenever we get people on this show, they generally don't do that well at the next Olympics. So I, I want you to know that if you don't, but you will, you will win, I'm saying, but if you don't, you have every right to rip shit into us and basically blame us. I want you to know that. Post interviews on CBC, the first thing is I want you to be like, fuck off the podium. I shouldn't have gone on that piece of shit show. No one listens to it anyway. Fuck them. They cost me the gold. I will write that down in a list of excuses to give. Please do. It's, it's, it's no joke. I mean, we, we interviewed Olympians where they were a shoe in I think the top two mogul skiers going into Pyeongchang like one of these two is going to win. Neither even won a medal. And then Charles Hamlin, I don't know if you're familiar with him. It was yeah. basically, okay, he's going to set the all-time record for most medals won in Olympics, and he didn't win anything. And he was on the show beforehand. So we apologize in advance if that does happen. You guys shouldn't tell people that. No, no. You've got to hang up on us now, Colin. A lot of athletes are Maybe it's breaking the curse. Maybe it's kind of, you know, the commentary curse. The opposite. We have to say it. Yeah. One thing. Well, I, I love going through your Instagram, um, Derek, and kind of, you know, seeing you've had some good times in Australia, it seems. That's great. Uh, throwing first pitch at a, at a Jays game after the gold medal one here. But I've gone I've gone back a few years here as we're approaching Christmas. I feel this is a bit appropriate. Uh, seem like you're a bit of a fan of Rudolph, uh, the, the classic Rudolph show. And also you've got a, a sweater here, a, a, an elf sweater from uh, several years ago. Is that still around? You're going to get that out in a couple of weeks for Christmas? Uh, I think that I know what sweater you're talking about. <laughs> and it was basically just a, like, last-minute arts and crafts type thing for an ugly Christmas sweater party. Um, I do think that it's still hanging in my closet, but I have not seen it since probably the day that I posted that. Wow. I feel you need to dust it off and take and put that on the gram because I think I think your fans would love that. It's a pretty sexy sweater. We shall see. It probably has fallen apart. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually have to ask, I'm, I just started to jump in, Colin, as well. Like, have you ever, when you did wear it, or this is before the gold medal, but maybe just I've put the gold medal around. I don't know what you do with the medal, but, I mean, that would complement the gold medal very well, I feel. It might. I could probably, I could probably at least test that out. Uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Rudolph special as well. I mean, I'm obsessed with that. And uh, I have uh, a four-year-old, and then we have twins who are a year old. And I think this is the third year in a row I've tried to sh- show it to my oldest son. And he will watch anything else Christmas, like Frosty, Charlie Brown. Die has hard. no interest in Rudolph. <laughs> Die Hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm waiting for the day. And I, we showed it to him the other night, and I was telling my wife, I'm like, they're not liking my show. Like, what's wrong with it? <laughs> Oh, it's the, it's the best. I would still to this day say that it's my favorite Christmas movie. Um, I, ju- I just think that kids, I think it's tough for them to appreciate the sort of claymation, mm. you know, movies, given, given how realistic uh, cartoons can look now. Um, even, you know, I watch it once a year, and every time I'm like, gosh, this is so bad, but it's so, so good. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. We're going to wrap it up with the My Name is my favourite question of any interview whenever we have a medalist on the show, Derek, is, yeah, finding out what you what you do with a medal, like is it in a sock drawer, do you have it on display? And also, have you ever tried to use it for freebies? Like have you wrapped it around the neck and walked down to the local store and said, hey, Olympic gold medalist, I'll have that for free, thanks. <laughs> I have absolutely never done the latter. Um, <laughs> I was just the other day listening to Brittany McLean's uh, episode 
where she said, I don't know if it's a swimmer thing, but usually swimmers take their medal off as soon as they're, you know, back sort of under the stands or out of sight. I, maybe I've got some swimmer in me cause I'm, you know, pretty similar <laughs> in that sense. So, um, I do have it on display. I do, you know, I, I like any opportunity to, you know, bring it to speaking engagements or bring it to, um, you know, similar activities like that, not because I like showing it off, but it's, you know, would have meant, it would have meant a lot to me as a kid, seeing an Olympic medal in person, being able to touch it or put it on. Um, so, you know, more than I, I definitely, I would say that there's not sort of any enjoyment that I get being like, look at this, I won this, but it's more seeing people's eyes light up or seeing how excited they are to see it. Um, so it is on, it is on display. Usually, I mean, the people that are coming to my house are friends and family who couldn't care less anyway, but, um, you know, any, any opportunity to, to show people that I know it's going to, it's going to make their day or it's going to, um, mean a lot to them. I like to, you know, have it on display for that. And does the Paul bronze medal get ignored now that you got a gold? Like, does that just sit in the sock drawer now? <laughs> I no, I, you know what? I am super proud of the bronze medal. Um, I, I just had such such different experiences, just such different lead ups to those two games. They're they're really on a parallel for me. I am, you know, I'm almost just as proud as the as the bronze medal as I am the the gold. Obviously, the gold one's a little shinier and a little prettier, but <laughs> uh, they're right next to each other on a right. on a display shelf. They're on the same level. So we got to go through our My Name Is uh, series here. Now, we mentioned to you off the air uh, that we asked this to all the people, and you said you vaguely remember filling these out in the past, but we couldn't find it on the site. Uh, so uh, we're, we're looking forward to Tokyo to see if your answers do match, because, I mean, guaranteed, they're, they're going to put you as one of the athletes up there. Uh, ben, you've got one uh, lined up here. Who are you using do. as the base? The, the base for this one, and I've gone completely different games. I haven't even gone a summer athlete. I've gone a winter athlete here, Derek. I've gone with uh, hockey silver medalist Laura Stacy from Pyeongchang. So not sure if there's any winter theme ones here that we might have to alternate. But uh, we'll start off with what is your favorite Olympic moment? And let's say you can't answer yourself winning either of the medals. So, uh, like I said, I, the first games that I remember watching was the Sydney games in 2000. So for me, I watched, um, Simon Woodfield win gold in the triathlon there. And I was not a swimmer. I had never, you know, I mean, I had to ride bikes, but I'd never been like a cyclist. Um, but for me, that was just the coolest, the coolest experience. I was so so, so, so excited watching that, this new sport that I'd never really heard of. Um, and to this day, I usually would say that that was my favorite. Uh, I remember Olympic watching moment. that vividly. I, I was 13 and obviously, you know, Australia just gripped by the Olympics. So we're all obsessed. But that was, I think, day two or day three because the women's was the first because uh, McKaylee Jones got a silver for Australia. And I remember going, oh, wait, you know, Australia, we're great at triathlon. We'll win something in this one. And even before I lived here, I was obsessed with Canada. So to me, if Australia didn't win, I was cheering for Canada. So I, yeah, I remember that very, very well. Colin, do you want to take the next one, or do you want do you want me to just keep going? This we're planning this very well, as you uh, can see, Derek. I pulled up a summer one. We can kind of alternate. If alternate, you, uh, go on. Like then we'll mix the questions up. They might be completely different. Uh, Who knows? Is your let's, next one let's a have you pull up another one because uh, oh, yeah, I think I lost mine. <laughs> you think we'd edit this out, Derek? But as you can tell, we're very professional. Um, <laughs> if if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Uh, teleportation. Ah, nice. That 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 is a good one to have. More people need to use that one. Uh, what is your favorite sports movie? Ooh. My favorite sports movie. I like Miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like The Sandlot. Yep. One of the classics. Um, I think I'll have. To give the nod to Miracle. Okay. Is there is there any high jumping movies out there that that we should know about? <laughs> uh, are they waiting to make the story on you, Derek? Perhaps that's kind of going to be the first one. Uh, I honestly that does not sound interesting to me. <laughs> uh, I have one here. Oh, there goes my test. That's all right. 
That's just just everyone letting you know that Canada's in a state of emergency apparently right now. Yeah, exactly. Phones. Yes. Uh, I actually pulled up a javelin athlete, Liz Gleedle here. Are you familiar with Liz? Of course. Yep. All right. Uh, I'm going to give you a question here, which I don't think is on Ben's. Uh, if I could choose an Olympic host city, it would be. Athens. Nice. nice. I mean, I know they've been the host city, but I would have loved, I would have loved to have competed. The athletes I got to compete in Sydney and Athens back to back are, I, the jealousy is, is, indescribable <laughs> well one of your pictures on instagram i see in front of the opera house so a bit of a fan of sydney i well since watching the games in 2000 i've been you know obsessed um it was always those two cities were kind of my lifetime goals to get to and you know i've been to both multiple times and love them just as much as i knew that i was going to do you take opportunities or maybe i'm just an idiot who does this when i go to olympic cities to visit olympic sites or kind of find like a plaque or something that kind of signifies that the olympics were there Yes. Um, I mean, I've, I've been to, I've been to Sydney a lot more than I've been there multiple times. And when I'm there train, you know, in the Olympic park. So that one's definitely, you know, cool experience for me. But anytime that I've been to, to Athens, it's been important, you know, to, to see not just the original Olympic stadium, but to see sort of the, the more modern Olympic stadiums. Um, and then other than that, most of the time when we're competing, at Diamond Leagues in Europe, it's in an Olympic stadium. Mm-hmm. So I do get that opportunity quite often, fortunately. I'm that weird geek who every single time I go to Vancouver, basically a, a must is I have to get a photo in front of the cauldron. Like I just do. I mean, it's mm-hmm. literally right there near the train station anyway. But yeah. like, it's kind of like, oh, well, Matt, I'm here again. May as well do it. <laughs> I've, yeah, got, sure. I've got mine from Calgary behind me right now. It's not <laughs> display. Yeah, yeah. And, and Colin peed on the Calgary logo. So Colin did even more no. than that. So. <laughs> Long story, I was a child and I didn't know what it was and an older cousin said, the bathrooms are closed, let's go here. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, ben, you got another question? <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll let you calm down after embarrassing you. Uh, what's your favourite pump-up song? Is, is, a, is a pump-up song something you have as a high jumper? Like, can you kind of have a blaring over the speakers, getting you ready as you're clapping with the crowd, getting them to get behind you? We do often have... Um... If there's high jump only meets, which are some of my favorite competitions to go to, uh, usually they will ask you to pick a song and they'll play that song when it's your turn. So basically in lieu of announcing Derek's up, they'll just play your song. Um, and that's kind of when your minute starts. So I, I take it pretty seriously choosing a song. (laughs) You know, I need something that it's a fast enough beat that you can clap to. It gets going right away to get the fans into it, but I do change it up every single every competition so i'm kind of, I've, I've always got a list uh in my phone of possible songs to use mm-hmm. so uh i would say the, the last song that i used and he's he's a pretty he's a staple on the list was 24 karat by bruno mars nice but i've used bruno mars songs a lot i need okay. him to come out with a new album with suitable <laughs> come on he's been listening to the show bruno so he'll be dropping something he should soon. be listening yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's a fan of yours. So, you know, you're not just a fan of his. Uh, what's the most recent TV show that you binge watched? Uh, I The Queen uh, Queen's Gambit. Did you enjoy it? Oh, was it favorite? Amazing. I did enjoy it. I was that little kid that what I was always asking my parents to play chess with me. Um, I was in, I don't know that I would say it was in chess club, but we had a sort of like we, my school would do like a chess tournament. You get to, we'd sort of choose, have a tournament. The winners would get to go to the citywide tournament. Um, and so I always look forward to that. I was not very good. I mean, I was a kid who could play chess. So that kind of already sets you apart from the majority of kids, but that was about where my chess prowess ended. I, I watched the show as well. I mean, it's probably the only thing I binge watched all year because typically I get tired after one or two episodes. Uh, but right. I was exactly like you. Like, I love chess that as an adult, I would carry a chess board with me everywhere I went. Does anybody want to play chess? But I may be the worst chess player in the world. So uh, <laughs> you could probably take me if we actually play chess. 
Well, that's the only way to get better. You carry a chess board everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, you think, but I never got better. Um, I've got a question here. I don't think we've ever asked this one before, and it's actually quite interesting. The weirdest instruction a coach ever gave me was? The weirdest instruction? That's funny. So I, I've been working with my coach for the last 12 years. I've only had two hydrant coaches in my life. Um, and so we're pretty much always on, on the same page. I don't know that they've ever really given me any weird instructions. One though, that I will say that I hear a lot from other, when I'm in competitions and I hear coaches say to other athletes is just move back and run faster. Um, which isn't really that weird. It's just kind of the staple and I don't, I hardly ever agree with it. Um, but it's just, if you are around a high jump competition, you're going to hear those words. <laughs> and I mean, it's almost like telling somebody who's doing hurdles, jump higher. <laughs> right. Or a high jumper. Yeah. Do the exact same thing, but just jump a little higher. Actually, yeah. you know what? That's probably it. I've probably had someone say that. Do exactly what you just did. Just jump a little higher. <laughs> Which is it's kind of, you know, any sports like that, isn't it? Like, you know, where, where I'm from, football, it's Australian football. It's, it's kick it, pick it up, kick it. It's like, well, what the fuck yeah. do you think they're out there doing? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're, everyone in that, that game just looks, oh, thanks, guys. Really? I, I wasn't unaware of exactly what I was out here to do. Um, <laughs> what is your, we often talk about favorite foods, but let's go the opposite direction. What's your least favorite food? Man, well, it's, it's funny. I I tell this story. Well, not really a story, but um, whenever people talk about meatloaf, I remember one time as a kid being like asking my mom, "Can we have meatloaf?" Like, I really I love meatloaf, and she's like, "Really? I I don't remember you liking meatloaf, but sure, I'll make it." And then um, she made it, and then I when I saw it, I said. Oh, I know I meant pot roast. I like pot roast. <laughs> and I did not like meatloaf. Um, and I still, it baffles me whenever anyone says they love meatloaf. 75% of the time people will say, you've never had my mom's meatloaf, which is, you know, the most annoying answer because meatloaf is meatloaf to me. But I would say that's probably, uh, probably the least favorite. I've got one more really good question here, and I'm hoping uh, you're going to give the answer that uh, that I would give, uh, as any good kid from Ontario might give. As a kid, my favorite sports team was? You're from Winnipeg? I'm from Winnipeg, but it's not a Winnipeg team. <laughs> okay, well, it, I'm sure it's not the answer. My favorite uh, sports team was the Detroit Red Wings. Oh, okay. Okay. I was crossing I up, my fingers I, for the Leafs, but Red Wings still good. I'm only, I grew up about an hour from Detroit. Um, so my town is pretty much split down the middle between Red Wings fans and, and Leafs fans. But uh, my my house was not divided. It was uh, a Red Wings house. Wow. wow. I mean, mid, mid to late 90s Red Wings. There's really no team in history like that. Right. It was, I mean, now they're not terribly fun to watch, but <laughs> yeah. you know, I saw four Stanley Cups, I think, in, in really my formative years before I went away to university. So they were tough to beat. Tell, tell tell Colin what's that like. What's it like to see a team in a Stanley <laughs> Cup? Uh, I mean, Colin, it's been a while for you guys, 40, 50 years. I, you know, I, I root for the Leafs and I live in Winnipeg. I don't know what a Stanley Cup even looks like. <laughs> I'm Australian. I have two teams. At least my teams have won well, one each in their <laughs> lifetime. So that kind of that kind of works. Well, when you pick two teams, you got pretty good odds. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. like when, when you grow up in Australia, your hockey viewership is very limited. So when you're exposed to the Mighty Ducks, you're kind of guaranteed to go for one team, and then you've got to choose a Canadian team. And therefore, I loved the movie Cool Runnings. I loved Bret Hart as a kid. And therefore, Calgary just seemed to make sense. So, you know. And when I say I've seen them when I was two years old when they won the Stanley Cup, so I technically haven't. I saw them 
get robbed of one in 2004, but that's another story. Um, Derek, it's been a lot of fun to have you on the show and, and learn everything about this and, and the unique sport that is high jump. It's, you're our first high jumper on the show, so it's always fun to get a, a new sport on the show. And uh, we thank you and wish you all the best of luck for, for Tokyo and, and break the off-the-podium curse, Derek. Go out there and win that gold. Bring it back. Double gold medalist Derek Drown. That would be a fantastic thing to say in about 12 months' time. <laughs> My fingers are crossed. Thanks so much for having me, guys.